right, so this morning we are starting into uh, the text of Ephesians, the first chapter. And we will go through, you know, we only have 11 uh, sessions here, even though we have a quarter. We've got two Sundays that we're having gospel meetings, so we're, we're to 11 classes. So this week and next week we will be doing a chapter a week. So, uh, you know, it's quick to read through that during the week. You can read through it multiple times, and then that will help us in our discussion. So as Carrie pointed out uh, last week, the first three chapters of Ephesians really explain the relationship between Christ and his church and the spiritual blessings that uh, Christians have in our relationship with Christ. And then chapters four through six provide practical application for the Christian to understand how we are to live and to relate with one another, framed in our relationship with Christ. So we'll start by reading the first 14 chapters of Ephesians chapter 14 chapters, 14 verses. <laughs> It'd be a long reading. 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined, predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of time, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and things on earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So Paul starts, like he does uh, several of his letters, with making a statement about his apostleship, the fact that he was chosen of Jesus and by God's will. And then he, he writes to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So Paul addresses the brethren there as saints, and that's common to us. You know, we look at saints and, and we see... Uh, just exactly what that is, but in much of the religious world, saints 
have a different designation than they do in the Lord's church. So what is a saint as far as the scriptures are concerned? No, that's fine. We'll get a mic to you. It's your brothers and sisters in Christ and, and the individual that's the saint, but in the world they consider them to be people that passed on that did something for the church or something like that. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Uh, I grew up in denominationalism, and what I understood was a saint was basically a super Christian. Now, first, you had to be dead. That was the first thing. And second, it was someone who had done some uh, exceptional works. And like Mother Teresa, she was canonized by the Catholic Church as St. Teresa of Calcutta 10 or 15 years after she died. Okay? But what we know is saints, as the Bible designates it, are all Christians. All those who are in a right relationship with God are saints, or all those who are set aside to do Christ's work. Verse 3, if there's a key verse in the first half of the book, this is it. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. The first chapter of Ephesians is dedicated to explaining two great truths, that God's planning focuses upon providing spiritual blessings to his children, and that all spiritual blessings are in Christ. Now, those thoughts are proclaimed, as we see here in verse 3, and then they're explained in detail throughout the rest of the chapter. So God, through Christ, has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, and they come from the heavenly places. God's focus with his children is spiritual, not physical. Now, it's not that we cannot pray to God and ask for physical things. We do that for one another all the time, right? But would you agree that the focus is spiritual, not physical? Yes, sir. Just a comment about saints. The word translated saint in verse 1 is the same word that's translated uh, holy down in verse 4. Same Greek word. You know, in 1 Peter chapter 1, was it be ye holy for I am holy? So that's every Christian needs to be holy, so therefore every Christian is a saint. Yeah, and, I, and that's, that's very important. You know, there are a lot of things uh, in the religious world that are just contrary to sound teaching. One of those things would be deity, right? Our gospel preachers are exceptional at what they do. But they were not designated. They didn't go to seminary so they could be designated as Church of Christ preachers, right? They are Christians first. 
just like all the rest of us. Uh, it's the same situation with this. Saints are all of us who are faithful to Christ. We've all been called out, set aside to do his work. Bruce. And I think that's an important thought because in verse 3, that those last two words are very important and tie in with the saints, we could call them also the redeemed, is that these heavenly blessings only come to those who are in Christ, even though we may call ourselves a Christian. As John says, unless we are in Christ and have the attributes of Christ, uh, we have to question the word saint or redeemed. Well, and when we think about it, very good, very good comments. When we think about it, you know, do you think of yourself as a saint? At all times, in everything that you do, in every interaction you have out in public, do you think of yourselves as a saint? And I, ask my, I have to ask myself this question. And I, th I think it's a good, a good thing to remind us of who we are. I think we've let the denominational world, uh, what do you want to call it, uh, cause us not to do that because they've raised that. And being humble, you don't want to call yourself that because the rest of the world calls them that. We've allowed the denom denominations to influence us there. No, that's, <clears throat> that's a very good point. And <laughs> to go along with what you said, yes, I am a saint, but I'm not better than anyone else, right? I've just taken advantage of and been blessed to be a Christian. And that's, that's an excellent point that you make. Oh, just, sorry. Just really quick. I associate the word saint maybe as a boasting or a proud to say I'm a saint as opposed to I'm a Christian. In my mind, that's just kind of... Well, and for me... Calling myself a Christian is primary, but when I think about being a saint, that kind of pulls me into a, a, a position where I'm going to think much harder about what does that mean, and that's just for me, right? Good comments. Thank you. So, as far as our spiritual blessings, do those in the world receive spiritual blessings, those who are not Christians? Well, let me start with, do they receive physical blessings? They do, right? They get, I mean, God created the world. They get to take advantage of the same things that he has put in place in the world as we do. But the spiritual blessings, those are reserved for us as Christians, period. Those who are in the world are not going to receive any of those spiritual blessings. And when you think about the fact that as it, is, as it is pointed out here, that they are being showered upon us from heaven, that's pretty incredible. Those blessings are being showered upon us as his children. We've got one over here. Uh, to go along with that previous statement, I'll all spiritual blessings are offered to all mankind. And so, in a sense, it, 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 it is not received in that not all the world receives it. 
but it's offered to all and it's there for the taking for free. It's just a matter of those who grasp it and hold on to it and those who let it pass by. Excellent point. Thank you. So the expression in Christ or in him is used 30 times in this letter. As you are reading through, take a look and note how many times that's used and how it is used. All right, verses 4 through 6. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us to the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of his glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Now, here, here, here's another passage that we can talk about that is used uh, in many denominational churches erroneously. What doctrine, and you can just, somebody can holler it out, what doctrine might this be supporting in denominationalism? Yeah. Calvinism, predestination, that's, that's exactly right. Um, now, of course, we have to ask, okay, as it appears here, if all we had was this, how does it appear? Well, when it says he predestined us to adoption as sons, and this is one of the verses that they hang their hat on uh, in Calvinism, it appears that God has chosen Eric Grace to be his child, and my next door neighbor, he has not chosen, right? There's a sense in which that's true, which we'll talk about here, but is that true that God said, Eric Grace is going to be a child of mine and he'll have nothing to do with it? Well, we know better than that. I mean, that's a comfortable doctrine because then there's nothing for us to do, right? We don't have any accountability, don't have any responsibility. But we don't have to go very far. We go back into Galatians uh, 3, 26, 27. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. God did not choose me as a Christian before I was even in existence. He did not say, Eric Grace is going to be one of my children. There were conditions put down for me to be a Christian, right? For all of us. It's conditional. God did elect me, but he, collect, he elected me on a conditional basis. I have to adhere to God's plan of salvation. You have to adhere to God's plan of salvation, right? Yes. Hang on for the mic, please. Sorry. Just we got those folks online, and they don't know. know what we're up to if we don't use the mic. I mean, we don't even, if you just look in chapter, or the verse 1, it says, to the saints who are uh, in Ephesus and faithful in Christ. That's who this is predestined to those who are faithful. I mean, it's right there in the same two or three sentences. 
Yes, Bruce. <clears throat> and I agree with Karen, but as I read verse 4, what was predestined is Christ would come into the world to save man. That's who was predestined. That could not be changed. That has happened. Now, we go back again to in him, in Christ. Because Christ came, the working of the gospel and the working of salvation through the blood of Christ is available to all men and particularly the saints here who were because of Christ predestined to hear the gospel and either obey or reject it. And I think that's what predestination folks and Calvinist folks miss. It's not the people who were predestined. It was Christ Jesus. Yes, sir. I was just going to add on to that. The, uh, in Calvinism, the you in TULIP is unconditional election. The belief that I, David Creech, perhaps, have been predetermined before the beginning of time that to be among the elect and that there's nothing that I can do in this life to avoid being one of the elect and the elect will be saved. Now, I believe in conditional election. You could say it that way, perhaps. Um, we get a little bit wrapped around the axle, I think, on these words predestined, predetermined, foreordained. But we really use the same kind of language today, and we do the same things. If I take a college class, uh, in the introduction of that class, the teacher, the professor, whoever, is going to tell me what I need to do in order to pass this class, in order to make an A in this class. You can call that a rubric or whatever, the, uh, the criteria. Somebody has determined in advance what I must do in order to make an A in this class. And as Bruce said, God determined before the beginning of the time that those that believe in his son and obey him, those that are in Christ, will be among the elect. That is who God has elected. No, you're absolutely right. Thank you. Now, it's important for us because a lot of the folks, I mean, how many Baptist churches are there in town here? I don't know. A bunch, right? Yeah, pretty much one on every corner. I grew up with a granddad who was a Baptist preacher. At that time, they were very specific about the fact that you had an experience where God was going to tell you that you were one of his elect. You're going to be out milking the cow, and the cow tells you this is it, or whatever it might be. And I know that sounds silly, but I've heard sillier things than that, right? But, but that was the kind of thing that, that they hung their hat on. So then you sat around waiting for your experience. And if you didn't have that experience, then you assumed that you were not one of the elect. Now, as, as David pointed out, you know, in that doctrine, um, unconditional election, that's, that's the you and tulip, um, irresistible grace, meaning God is going to elect me and I do not have anything to do with it, nor can I, right? And perseverance of the saints, meaning I cannot fall away. 
no matter what I do, if God has selected me, I cannot fall away. And what they'll say if somebody does fall away is, well, he was never, God hadn't, hadn't actually selected him, right? It's important that you know and understand this doctrine so that when you're out in public and you run into somebody and you have conversation with them, you understand where they may be coming from. Uh, and, and it's much easier for you than to focus on, here's what the Word of God says, right? All right, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. So here we start with another one of those in him statements that says the child of God is redeemed through the blood of Christ. So what does it mean to be redeemed? Very good. Be forgiven and to be bought with a price. That's exactly right. And bought with a price um, ties in because we don't use the word redeemed very often. Now, when I was a kid, you got coupons. And you got to redeem those coupons, right? Which meant you stacked them up and you saved them and then you turned them in and you were able to buy back something with those coupons. In the case of the bondage of sin, the ransom from that bondage had to be the blood of Christ. We were bought with a price, right? Um, and that's what redemption is all about. The redemption is nothing that I have earned, but it's through God's grace that I receive forgiveness of sins and God's bountiful spiritual blessings. All right, verse 8, our sins are forgiven through grace of God by the application of the blood of Christ. It says, which he lavishes upon us. That's not a word that we use very often in our vocabulary, New American Standard. But New King James says, which he made to abound toward us. So that's, that's a little easier to understand. What does it mean when something abounds? Yeah, there's a lot of it, right? Not just a little bit. God is so gracious with the things that he gives us that those blessings that we receive abound. He makes those abound toward us. All right, verses 9 through 12. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of time. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. So, verse, back up to verse 9. He made us known to us the mystery of his will. 
A mystery is something that is hidden, right? That you cannot understand what it is that's being presented to you. Now, in this case, the plan of salvation was, in a sense, hidden, right? Uh, that he would bring salvation to both Jews and Greeks and put them in a right relationship with God through Christ. But it was in God's time by his design. We already talked about the fact that um, the plan of salvation and Christ coming, that was God's design before he created the world. That was in place. That was his intent. You know, another, another thing you'll hear sometimes um, is that God sent Christ because he didn't get it right with the old law. You know, he, he did not put that law in place to, to solve everything, right, to take care of things. So because it couldn't, then he had to, had to give his son. That's simply not the case. It was always his intent from the beginning that Christ would come, would die on a cross, and that then the uh, grace of God would be open to all, Jew and Gentile alike. Yeah, uh, a mystery, of course, is it's not something you can't understand. You just don't know what it is, you know. And uh, that's the way the gospel was for a long, long time. In First Peter chapter one, it talks about the angels long to look into those things. They just didn't know God's plan. But now it's not a mystery anymore because He's revealed it, so we can know what that is. Yeah, very good point. Yes, we have all that we need. Man has absolutely everything that they need. I think any good teacher knows that repetition is important when, when speaking to students. It's interesting to me that in these verses, in verse 1, uh, he talks about uh, Paul being an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. In verse 5, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the kind intention of his will. Uh, in verse 9, he talks about how he made known to us the mystery of his will. And in verse 11, we've obtained an inheritance, having predestined according to the purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. <laughs> this is his will. <laughs> and it's very important, I think, to understand that. Very good point. Thank you. All right. Verse 11 and 12, also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, as Gary pointed out, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Beyond all the spiritual blessings of being chosen, adopted, and redeemed, the Christian also receives an inheritance or heritage in heaven. Before God created the world, he determined the details, as we talked about, of his plan of salvation. So, I think what it's saying in verse 11 is that we are God's heritage. Does that make sense to you? 
that ring true? Think about that. Think about that a little bit. That God considers us to be his inheritance or his heritage, if you will, as his children. Again, that's, that's a pretty amazing thing to think about. Verse 12, the first to hope in Christ, uh, New American Standard, or the first trusted in Christ. So who would have been first? Who was it that was first trusting in Christ? Okay. Um, so in this case, I think those who were first were those Jews who obeyed the gospel first. That makes sense. I think that's who was who was first to trust in Christ. Who was waiting for the Savior? Were the Gentiles waiting for the Savior? The Jews were waiting. It's pretty amazing how few of them actually recognized Christ as the Savior when He came. They were the ones that knew, that should have known and should have been able to, to say, yes, this, this is the Son of God. But for reasons we don't have time to discuss, that's not what most of them did. But a few of them did. And for those few, they were the first who trusted, who obeyed the gospel, and who trusted in Christ. Any comments toward that? Yeah, to support that point, um, Romans 9 verse 4 will say, speaking of Israel, that uh, the Israelites are the ones to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and all these other things, the covenants, all the promises that God had made, especially and first were to, were to the Jews. But then, of course, as you are, will say, the, um, the Gentiles are absolutely part of that according to the mystery. Yeah, absolutely. Very good. Good point. Eric, let me just mention one little thing that ties into this in verse 8 when he talks about the riches of the blood of Christ. Uh, I'm not going to get into your lesson next week, but in chapter 2 he continues this thought in 13 and 16 by talking about the blood drawing us near, the blood reconciling us. And here after verse 8 and, and going on through the chapter, he talks about all these riches, the inheritance, uh, having a mediator, Christ, and, and an intercessor, and having uh, faith and trust and hope. And we could go on and on, but these are things as we partake of the Lord's Supper later on need to consider as we partake of the, the bread and the cup. What did this death, which was so gruesome and so horrible, that had to be done in order for <clears throat> us to be saved, what did it bring? Riches. The New Testament is full of the riches that it brings, this relationship through Christ with God, this relationship with each other, having the same mind and having the, the mind of Christ. Uh, but, you know, again, these little two words, 
you know, abundant riches in him uh, sometimes takes a great deal of meditation in order for us to truly appreciate that and be happy as Christians uh, to go back and think of how abundantly and richly we are blessed by the blood of Christ. Yeah, very good point. We live in a physical world day in, day out. And I think we need to spend most of our time thinking about the spiritual blessings that we have. And if we do that, uh, we are in much better shape and much more accurately presenting ourselves as Christians. All right, verse 13 and 14, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. So the saints at Ephesus heard, they believed and obeyed the message of truth, and they were sealed by the Holy Spirit. So what does a seal represent? All three of those things. Authority, possession, and authenticity. Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. When something is sealed, like when do you get a seal? Well, if you had a document, you sell your house, right? The document, when that sale is complete, is going to have a seal on it. That seal authenticates and completes that transaction, right? Well, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. If you think about that, you know, folks these days are real big into tattoos. You're going to get a tattoo... If there was a seal of Christ, it'd go right there, right? Right in the middle of your forehead. Nobody would have any doubt who you were. That doesn't exist physically, and we're not going to do that. But spiritually, that's exactly what exists. We have been sealed uh, by Christ, and it confirms who we are to the rest of the world. 2 Timothy 2.19 Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Now think about that. If you had a physical seal on your forehead so everybody knew, might you act differently in certain circumstances? I hope not, right? But that's what we have to think about before we have an interaction with somebody in the world, uh, before we do business, whatever it might be, that there is a seal that God has placed on us through the Holy Spirit that we are complete and we are his. And we have to think about that and consider that uh, throughout our lives. All right, so let's move on. 
to the last half of the first chapter. Beginning in verse 15, for this reason I too have heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints. Do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory and, the, and his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Let's stop right there for now, the time that we have. So... It's been about five years since Paul was with the church at Ephesus. And yet he says, I pray constantly for them. Think about all those who Paul had interacted with when he was out preaching the gospel. And if you read, if you read in Colossians, you read any other letter that he's written, He's always praying for those who he knows, brethren who he knows, wherever they are. And it's pretty amazing to think about that's the example that we have of, of a faithful man of God. Uh, in Colossians, if you look the first chapter there, you will see a very similar prayer to what you see here. These are traits uh, that, that we should mimic, if you will. Uh, as the Apostle Paul gives us an example. Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So Paul prays here that the, the brethren may have a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Meaning that he wants them to be wise in their discernment and be able to understand the things that are revealed to them. Not that they're, I don't think it's that they would receive a new revelation but it's that they would be able to understand what is revealed. There are things that may be revealed, I don't know, maybe you're a brain surgeon, and you tell me all about doing surgery on a brain. Well, you can give me that information, but I don't know anything about brain surgery, and so I am not likely to understand that revelation, right? You revealed it to me, but I don't get it. I think he's saying here that he wants them to be able to understand the things that are revealed to them. I pray that your, the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, verse 18. What are the riches of his glory and inheritance in the saints and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe these are in a accordance with the working of the strength of his might. So think about the heart as we 
close here in the next few minutes. The heart represents a man's character, his conscience, his emotions. Proverbs 4.23 says, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Paul prays that, that their hearts will be enlightened so that they'll see, they'll know, and they'll understand the great riches of God's blessing and the promises made to his faithful in the hope of his calling. Verse 19, the true power of God is described as surpassing greatness of his power. And he provides it to all believers, right? That's a power surpassing greatness of his power. That's power that we cannot understand. Power that we cannot comprehend, uh, no matter how much evidence we have of God's existence. And we have in my view, a great deal of evidence of God's existence. Through creation, through all the blessings that we have, we have uh, so much information and so much available to us, and yet what we understand is just a small part of what God provides. That's pretty amazing to think about. 19b uh, there are, in accordance with the working of strength of his might, second half of verse 19, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one to come. All right, we will pick up right there next week, finish that off, and then move into chapter two. Thank you guys for your good comments.